Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is coming up to 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett here for Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today, why Palestinian scarves, the kafia, are important. I'll be speaking with Bruce Francis. A report back from the Pacific Islands Forum with researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. The East Timor election results are now final and also an update on the situation in the, Pal- in the Philippines. Under Duterte with Peter Murphy, trade union and human rights activist, the ongoing campaign in the city of Moreland to stop development of a toxic site with Sue Bolton. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and let's see what he's got to say this week. A week, Jane, listener, when US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, condemned evil North Korea for not only thinking the US of practicing war games on North Korea's doorstep aimed at invading North Korea meant the US of had some not-so-clandestine plan to invade North Korea, but that's the evil in North Korea threatening its neighbours, including good liberty, freedom and democracy love and South Korea by the treacherous act of being right next door to those it is right next door to. When we totally destroy North Korea, when we wipe evil North Korea off the map, evil North Korea, bad, very bad, the rocket man refuses to guarantee he will contain the nuclear fallout within the North Korean borders or or what were the North Korean borders. Terrible, terrible. He is threatening his neighbours with nuclear fallout. Evil, very evil. Why do you plan to wipe North Korea off the map with nuclear weapons? Uh, To avoid a nuclear holocaust, uh, too awful to contemplate. Terrible, terrible. Thank goodness Donald got elected or the world would never have known just how aggressive and dangerous North Korea is. Peace in our time after you wipe out North Korea, Donald? Peace, very good. Uh, After a little necessary clean-out, after we wipe out evil Iran, evil Cuba, evil Venezuela, peace, freedom of capital, good, very good, also very good. We are often reluctantly forced to highlight just how evil, evil unions are, evil, evil, evil. So it's refreshing when we can report a good union, good, 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 like the shopping the workers union, doing a win-win deal with caring employers, including salt, sugar and fat franchise McDonald's, where they agreed to an enterprise agreement over and above the award. Well, more correctly, under and below the award, young workers at weekends paid $5 an hour less than the award, or about 17 to 1800 a year down the gurgler, along with their union fees. That's the win-win. The union gets a few million a year in union fees for working its guts out to make sure the workers get below award rates. And the deal makes it compulsory for the union to be present at induction days to make sure it gets its million. See? Win-win. 
well, win-win-lose, but McDonald's and the good, good, good union aren't in the third category, and thanks to the good, good, good union, the young workers will receive a positive lesson about joining a union when they move on. It'll make them think twice about joining an evil union, proving the difference if the evil construction union goes to a job site and says all workers must be in the union, it gets fined millions. So it's encouraging and proper that the law sensibly supports good, good, good unions and good, good, good caring employers who work with the good, good, good union to ensure all the workers are in the union. It makes sense, McDonald's manager Rick Bloated explained. Otherwise, we'd have to meet award rates and conditions. Speaking of meeting, the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax claims the lobster with a mobster state-caring business class supremo and would-be big supremo Matthew Pay Guy also charged a developer or two ten grand for an audience with which Matthew Pay denies, and he may be right, as incorrect, because I'm sure we'd agree, listener, we can't imagine why anybody who could afford it wouldn't pay ten grand not to have to meet him. On leaders, major battle in Canberra continuing between the leader and the would-be leader, with Malcolm being challenged by whom? Yes, the battle between Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition and his challenger for leader of the opposition, former big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses. Commentators commented that Tiny is doing a far better job than Little Billy at being opposition leader at making the government feel uncomfortable. Well, if Tiny carries out his threat to oppose a clean energy target to cross the floor, he'll more than likely pass Little Billy going the other way. He, Tiny, will be voting in opposition to the government, and it's almost certain Little Billy and the Socialists will be voting with the government. After all, Little Billy has said the Socialists will accept coal being included in clean energy, while that man of principle, Tiny, has said he will not support any clean energy source other than coal. While on Tiny, reverse psychology working well this week with true blue Aussie conservatives against bestiality leader and we suspect only member Corgi St. Bernardi doing his bit for girls' education in Africa, attacking a school event hoping to raise about $900 for the cause. Wear a skirt day. Gender morphing Corgi sputtered. Corgi knows girls and boys and teachers in skirts is but a step away from. Before we know it, it will be dogs and cats and sheep and pigs in skirts accompanied by upskirting. It's disgusting. But it turns out Corgi was practicing reverse psychology, reflecting his support for girls' education in Africa. The 900 target following Corgi's plea not to donate, morphing into 200 or so grand and rising at last count. This week, fundraisers are falling over themselves to recruit Corgi. No reverse psychology in another great troubler was he who knows same-sex marriage will lead to the end of society as we know it, as we discover just how violent are those who talk about love. Poor Tiny a bit more for the bosses. Head-butted when we know Tiny is a fan of shirt-fronting, although Tiny shirt-fronting a Russian male like 
two randy kangaroos might raise the odd question. Worth checking that out with Corgi. But the same day, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Giant Mine columnist continued his expose after expose of violence by the evil yes brigade against the love thy neighbour, unless she or he is, a, is the same sex. No brigade. More violence. The ABC describing it as alleged attack, as if there's some doubt, but not Lord Rupert. A bit more for the boss's assault. No alleged, no doubt. Because only the most cynical would suggest all these examples of violence by the evil destroy society as we know it, yes, brigade, are very timely. A perfect fit into the no campaign logic of raising everything but the actual issue. Just wish someone in all the condemnations attacks at how evil the yes people are from the no lot and apologies from the yes campaign and its supporters like little Billy Short and Ambition, someone would have tossed in the phrase, if it was a real yes campaigner. The fact that the bloke arrested and Tiny must be so upset the cameras just missed the incident, missed whatever happened, and the reliable crowd of phone-at-the-ready filming that always emerges in these situations was for just this once not reliable. No one got it, apparently. The fact that the bloke arrested denied he was a Yes campaigner thankfully hasn't got in the way of the argument. The Yes lot are violent terrorists who force their dear little children and animals to cross-dress, cross-customers. See, the witch bank, which used to be our bank, has flogged off its insurance arm, which made the news recently for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, how did you make it so profitable? The new owner sought a few clues. Simple. Reject every claim. But there must be some genuine claims. All of them, we think, uh, all of them, but act of God and page after page of ambiguous small print can work wonders in getting round that problem. But how altruistic the witch bank, which used to be, dropped its fee for turning up out the front and taking some of our money out. And then to show the social value of competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, the other three giant competitors were also struck with the spirit of altruism. We can but wonder how they could afford it. Perhaps the fee for avoiding a fee fee will help a bit, along with the walking past the door fee. In the week that was spot, Saturday's final attracting a predicted 90 or so thousand fans and corporate hangers-on, fully 1,400 of the 90,000 were supporting the artificial AFL marketing exercise make-believe lot from Western Sydney, where the new team and its great traditions have so, so captured the public imagination, its home final the previous week attracted the lowest finals crowd anywhere for more than a hundred years when World War I affected the crowds. Only about 1,400 tickets. Does that worry you? An ABC interviewer asked its president. No, that's our entire supporter base. The fact that the president is the former Chamber of Prophets big supremo David Shep heard the welfare way, who regularly writes reports for the caring business class government which conclude what we all need desperately is no taxes on the rich, no wages for the workers and slash crippling work conditions like going home at nights. And he always looks so happy telling us all that so we can all feel for poor David that his team lost. 
finally fighting not to lose, fighting to win-win for all of us. Malcolm and his stunning mind, Deputy Barnacle, continue to work their guts out to reduce our utility bills, in which we receive the almost utopian promised benefits of handing our utilities to the lean, mean hand of the super-efficient private sector. Imagine what we'd be paying if the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector still ran the system. Uh, so what's planned? We're calling a meeting with the utility bosses. Uh, and if that fails, we'll call a meeting with the utility bosses and we'll go on trying to meet our bills. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Kevin Healy tomorrow at 9 o'clock and his co-host tomorrow will be none other than Dave Kerrin, long-time trade union activist, one of the founders, if not the founder, of Earthworker. And they'll be discussing things such as what's happening with the plans for Victoria Market and push to privatise the Lands Department. So that's 9 o'clock tomorrow morning on City Limits. Is your job agency working for you? Are you being bullied by your job agency? Forced into work for the doll? Struggling to survive on New Start? Owen Bennett, President of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and Joe Toscano, Convener of Public Interest Before Corporate Interest will advise you of your rights at the Frankston Library, 60 Plain Street, Frankston, 12.30 Thursday the 28th of September. For inquiries, call Faye 0458 141 or Julie. 0431 623 437, a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling Kafia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. That's a message that we've been featuring here on 3CR for quite a while now. Actually, since Bruce Francis and Brian Newman returned from their first visit to Palestine. They are planning their next visit now, which will take place in late October. And I spoke with Bruce recently. And my first question to him was to identify the, the importance of the kafir in the Palestinian struggle. Partner and I went to Palestine in 2014, and I guess having always been interested in Palestine, um, it's very clear that Yasser Arafat really made the kafir, particularly the black and white kafir, symbolic of the Palestinian struggle. When we were there, um, staying in Ramallah, we came across a collection of, of kafirs in a shop, and we bought numerous ones of them to bring back for ourselves, but also to give as presents. We got back and we were so sort of touched by the experience and how fabulous the Palestinians were and how optimistic and friendly in their struggle. Um, we decided we'd really like to do something. We 
came up with the idea, well, we bought these fabulous kefirs um, and we didn't know that you could get them in colours other than the traditional black and white and red and white. Why don't we see if we could track down where they came from and what the story was? So we started that process and it was a really interesting process because, in fact, we found out that there's only actually one factory left in Palestine which makes kefirs. It's in Hebron. We'd been to Hebron, and Hebron is really um, symbolic, I guess, of the sort of oppression that takes place in Palestine, where you have settlers who have moved into areas which are clearly Palestinian areas, have been for a really long period of time. The army then, the Israeli army, comes in and protects them. People get kicked out of their homes, or people are under constant attack by the settlers, and they're really fundamentalist settlers. So it seemed like a really good idea to see if we could actually import and see if we could sell some. So we went through all the sort of backwards and forwards about trying to work out how we did that, not having ever been in retail. We eventually settled on then on importing our first carton. Importing by carton was the cheapest way to do it. The people at the factory, Hibawi, have been fantastic. You didn't actually get to see them, did you? No, didn't get to see them. Why was that? Well, we went to Hebron for the day. We had a fabulous tour guide with Visit Hebron, which is a youth group that does political um, tours of Hebron. It just wasn't on part of the schedule, I guess. And it wasn't until we got back to Ramallah that we realised that, you know, that's where the kafirs came from. So what really excited us was that there was actually a whole selection of of kafirs we could get. So... um, We've now imported them, and we're now up to having imported, uh, I think we're on our eighth carton. So we've sold in excess of 500 kafirs. Each of the kafirs, obviously, we pay the, the factory for the production of them, so that money goes back to the factory to make the factory more viable. And then the money that we make in terms of profit, we donate back largely to reconstruction work in Gaza and occasionally to a solidarity group in, in Melbourne. How do you go about selling them? Apart from here, people around 3CR, I think everyone's got one now. (laughs) I hope so. We go out to events um, and set up stalls. Word of mouth, we're just about to establish our own website, um, which will be kafir.org.au. It will probably be another month before it's up and functioning, and that will be another avenue. Obviously, the solidarity organisations are good in terms of promoting it, um, and word of mouth is amazing, really. We do a steady trade. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to be having to rely on it for your livelihood, but we do a steady trade, and as I said, we've sold well over in excess of 500, so that's, you know, more than $10,000 that's gone back to the factory and $5,000 that's gone to the reconstruction in Gaza. Got to keep that one factory going. That's right. <laughs> and it's not just a scarf, is it? It's a statement. It's an absolute statement. I don't know of really any other piece of clothing that is so aligned with a particular country or a particular struggle. It really, you know, is the sort of the national, almost the national symbol of Palestine. And that's fantastic, you know, that it's such a sort of a, a traditional piece of clothing is such uh, a symbol. And they're beautiful. And also you're, you're educating people. Yeah. When they see that scarf, they'll, they'll come up and I'll say, what are you doing here? Yeah, had lots of, even wearing them, you know, around all the time, lots of people stop and say, oh, where'd you get your scarf, you know, and you have these conversations and stuff. 
and it, it's really interesting. And it's really changed my perception, I think, of how the Australian public think about Palestine. I mean, I think if you listened and only read the mainstream media, you'd think that, you know, everyone was pro-Zionist and um, thought of Palestinians as, you know, wicked terrorists. Whereas actually when you're out in the street and you, you're wearing and people come up to have conversations, you actually realise that people understand the situation much better than what we're led to believe. One of the reasons why the, the factory is, has been struggling, and I believe others might have closed down, is imports coming, yeah. cheap imports from possibly China. Yeah, I think even if you look in Australia, you'll see that often there are kefirs which are cheaper. They will be made in China. Uh, they won't be of the same quality. And it's certainly, well, you know, that's fine on one level. It's certainly not doing anything to actually help the struggle or help people um, survive in um, Palestine. So for us it was really important. I mean, the crux of the issue really is that it's actually about being able to support Palestinian industry. Do you think the different colours distracts it all from the, the message of the scarves rather than the black and white and the red and white. We've got beautiful patterns now and different shades of all. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think if you wanted to make a really strong political statement, you'd probably go with the traditional. The benefit is that with the colours, A, they're beautiful, so you're actually saying something around the culture that while, yes, it's about struggle, it's also about more than struggle. It's about culture and beauty and other things as well. And, you know, we forget that Palestinian culture is really old. It's a really old part of the world. And so it's made by the Palestinians. What's the material? It's cotton. It's 100% cotton. They're really good quality. And I think it's part of a diversification from the factory's point of view in terms of being able to make a go of um, keeping the factory open is to actually have some more choice in terms of what people can do. So in that sort of sense, if it actually means it's appealing, uh, then you know it actually is good for people's livelihoods and people being able to have jobs and factories being able to continue. And given the context within Israel, keeping factories going is a pretty important sort of political statement in and of itself. Have you found out if there are other groups such as yours not doing exactly the same thing but similar things in other countries to spread the word of the kafir? Yeah, there's, um, there's a group, in fact the person I mainly deal with is sometimes in Germany and sometimes in the West Bank and there's a website out of Germany and they seem to distribute sort of right across Europe. That's really important. And you know, then you know, there are other obviously solidarity groups who are, who, who are selling different sort of products, you know, oil in the US and fair trade products here now. So there's a range of stuff that's actually going on. Because I think it's great um, that we all care about the struggle. But in the meantime, the people who are actually at the coalface have to exist. You're going again very soon. I bet the factory's in the plan this time. It certainly is high on the agenda. <laughs> so I'm really excited about going. Um, I've Since we've been, I've, I've seen some footage inside the factory, but I'm really sort of keen to get sort of to look and, and catch up with people who, you know, I now think of as friends, really. So, yeah, we're going late in October. And where are you planning to go this time that's different from the first time? So this time we're planning to join the Just Walk to Jerusalem, which is an initiative of the Amos Trust, which is a British uh, NGO. The Amos Trust is marking the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, 
and in the words of the Amos Trust, the seeds of today's injustice, inequality and violence were sown by the Balfour Declaration in 1917. I think people probably don't realise the significance of the Balfour Declaration. In 1917 and previous to that, the British government had promised the Palestinians, uh, the Arabs as they were called then, the, the land of Palestine. So in 1917, Balfour declared, um, and I'll just read this little quote out, His Majesty Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. He later went on, many years later, to also talk about the political rights of the indigenous people in that area. And I guess it's fairly clear, really, that since the establishment of Israel that the civil, religious and political rights of Palestinians have been violated as a matter of course. So I think this is an opportunity to, A, bring to awareness the importance and the role of the British government in the establishment of Israel, but also their responsibilities in terms of actually what they said at the time about looking after the rights of Palestinian people. So that's, I think, a really important part of the process. And I think it will build, you know, as... as um, uh, we see a movement around the world of uh, more and more governments recognising Palestine that um, there needs to be action taken. Um, it's now you know, 50 years of occupation um, since the, the Seven Day War and uh, you know, this sort of occupation wouldn't be tolerated anywhere else in the world. And the Amos Group? It's, uh, it's the Amos Trust key to their work is working in Palestine. That's one of their three key focus areas. And obviously, you know, they are looking for justice. Uh, and part of this walk is to actually bring those issues to the attention of the British government. And it's nice to feel part of it as, you know, non-British, but, you know, as it becomes a bit of an international effort. It'll be 100 years, and they have been actually walking from London and will finish up in Jerusalem. We'll fly and have boated a couple of legs of it. And people have been joining for different stages. So we're going to join in the West Bank. We'll be walking around the West Bank from one town to another with local partners of Amos Trust, with um, friends of theirs, with local people. So having, hopefully, a really immersion into you know, people's daily lives and being able to sort of walk and chat at the same time and see an amazing part of the country. Perhaps I might be able to talk to you while you're on it. Even if I don't do that, I'll certainly talk to you when you get back. That would be great. Okay, Bruce. And that, of course, is Bruce Francis, former manager here at 3CR. And if you are one of those very few people around here and listeners, especially to this program, who have not yet got a kefir, I'll play the message once again and please make sure that you get the, get one. It's absolutely beautiful colours and designs of these kefir scarves now. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and 
black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The 48th Pacific Island Forum is over and journalist and researcher Nick McClellan is back from that meeting. Bit of controversy as usual, Nick? Yeah, the forum brings together Australia, New Zealand and now uh, 16 Pacific Island countries and for obvious reasons there are differences over core policies. When you think about issues like climate change, decolonisation, trade, nuclear weapons, there are obvious disparities between a country as large as Australia and a country as small as Tuvalu. And so when this political security organisation is talking about issues like regional security, there are very different perspectives. You know, when Australia talks security, they're talking about working under the American nuclear umbrella to threaten North Korea. When Tuvalu talks about national security, they're talking about the threat of climate change and the problem that it places on its population of just 10,000 people. Then you have the question, why is a huge country like Australia in an organisation like this? Well, Australia very much from the beginning of the forum, which was created in 1971, Australia and New Zealand wanted to have an influence over their Pacific neighbours, politically, strategically and so on. Australia is surrounded by small island developing states and always will be, so by reasons of geography, Australian policymakers have always had a, an interest in the strategic importance of the islands to the north and the east of our continent. Going back to the Second World War, the islands provided a, a security barrier as the Japanese fought their way southwards, for example, even in today's nuclear era. You know, the islands in the Pacific, like Guam, is a major U.S. military headquarters in the Western Pacific. So the the Pacific Islands have always had a strategic importance for Australia. And when four island leaders stepped out of the what was then the South Pacific Commission, the colonial-era body that brought together countries across the region, they wanted a forum where they could talk about issues that concerned them. In those days, it was issues around trade and getting a better deal on trade. It was around the issue of nuclear testing, because France had begun nuclear testing in the Pacific in 1966, following in the footsteps of the United States and the United Kingdom. Pacific leaders were deeply opposed to those nuclear tests. And also, it was about the question of self-determination and independence. Uh, When the forum was created, there were only four Pacific countries that had gained their independence. Western Samoa, 1962, now called Samoa, Cook Islands in 65, Nauru in 68, and Fiji in 1970. Australia was still a colonial power in Papua New Guinea until 1975. France in in its Pacific territories. Britain in Kiribati, Tuvalu, um, Vanuatu. And so the issue about self-determination was there. 1961, in Dutch New Guinea, uh, West Papua nationalists raised the Morning Star flag, seeking independence. But they weren't to be the first to gain their independence, Samoa, the next year, through off New Zealand's administration, because under a deal uh, called the New York Agreement, the West Papuans lost their right to uh, political independence, and Indonesia took over, administered the territory, and then under the Act of Free Choice took over, and has ruled West Papua, Papua, till, to this day. What were those major issues this time, Nick? Well, the differences between Australia were particularly around climate and its Pacific neighbours. And that happens every meeting, doesn't it? It happens every meeting, but the stakes are getting pretty high. 
you know, people in the Pacific read the newspapers, listen to the radio, just like you and I, and they see the Australian government talking about establishing high-efficiency, low-emissions coal plant in Queensland using taxpayer funds. They see that it's talk about the opening of the Carmichael coal mine by the Indian corporation Adani, with once again Australia taxpayers' funds being proposed to build a $900 million railway from the coast to the Galilee Basin, opening up massive coal exports. They see that Australia's targets for greenhouse gas emissions, 26 to 28% reduction by 2030, are nowhere near what's required to meet the global challenge of climate change, and our Pacific neighbours are sick of it. And historically within the forum, Pacific Island countries have bitten their tongues, signed off on consensus communiques to square the circle of this policy difference. But on climate change, they're refusing to do so for a variety of reasons. The first, of course, is that this is a matter of national security. This is about livelihoods. It's about people's uh, capacity to grow food, to live in urban environments and so on. And the backdrop, as we were in Apia, Samoa, for the meeting, uh, we were in a hotel, Aggie Gray's Hotel, that was flooded out in 2002 by Cyclone Evan, flooded central Apia. As we were sitting in Aggie Gray's Hotel, Hurricane Irma was battering its way through the Caribbean, destroying 95% of buildings in Barbuda, and bringing back memories of Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu, 2014, Cyclone Winston in Fiji, 2016, which affected 62% of the population. As we were in Apia, we saw the drowning of Houston on the headlines every morning as we woke up. We heard about the drowning of Tampa, Florida. This is not just a problem that affects developing countries, it affects the greatest capitalist power in the world. It's called global warming for a reason, it affects all of us. And to see the Australian government and key ministers like Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan and our beloved backbencher, Mr Tony Abbott, talking about the need for more coal plants and more coal exports, our Pacific neighbours are pissed off. And they're saying so directly to the Prime Minister when he comes to meetings like this. And that's why Malcolm Turnbull only turned up for a day. He flew in on his own jet and flew out as quickly as he could. But there are arguments behind closed doors as well as in public with leaders like Anneli Sopwanga of Tuvalu, Hilda Heine, the President of the Marshall Islands, the host, Prime Minister of Samoa, Tui Leipa, all condemning Australia's climate policies as too little, not urgent enough, uh, not ambitious enough, and indeed a, a challenge to the region. This is an existential threat, and you can't write a communique to keep everyone happy, and that's certainly what happened this time. And I'd imagine climate change is also affecting the amount of fish that the people are able to put into their diet these days because of the warming of the ocean. And it has what are called slow-onset effects, the immediate impacts we see from natural disasters, and and the scientists are telling us that cyclones will become more intense in coming years uh, due to the effects of global warming. The warming of the oceans will draw up more energy into these uh, intense cyclones and hurricanes. Is that already happening in the Pacific? People believe so, that there is an element... I mean, the cyclones are a natural phenomenon. They happen, you know, regardless of climate change. But the climate change, according to projections, is driving the intensity and the energy of these cyclones. So Cyclone Winston that hit uh, Fiji in 2016 was um, the most powerful cyclone ever to hit a South Pacific country. And there have been some powerful ones before. And, you know, Cyclone Winston caused enormous damage, $2 billion Fijian worth of damage. The assessment put out after the cyclone by the Fiji government showed that 40,000 people were immediately affected 
and the livelihoods were compromised of 62% of the population. The destruction of the sugar crop, damage to the tourism industry, these are, are long-running things. There are still people, I was in Fiji recently, there are still people living in tents 18 months after the cyclone because uh, for a small developing country it's uh, taking time to rebuild. And that's why Fiji and other Pacific countries are striking out. They're very angry when people present them as victims. Fiji this year, for example, has been president of the UN General Assembly. You wouldn't know it in the Australian media, but Fiji, for the first time, a Pacific country, ever won the presidency of the General Assembly. Ambassador Peter Thompson's just finished his term. On behalf of the Asia-Pacific bloc, Fiji took that job. They hosted a major conference on the oceans in June, co-hosted with Sweden. And indeed, this year, in November, Fiji will be taking on the presidency of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the so-called COP. You know, we've had these meetings in Copenhagen, Cancun, Warsaw, Paris. Now the meeting is going to be held in Bonn. Fiji's too small to host it. But Fiji will be president of the UN Global Climate Talks for the next year. So Pacific Islanders aren't sitting around waiting. They're actively engaged in quite vibrant diplomacy around oceans, around climate change, around related issues of the economy and saying, we can't wait for the developed world to get their act together. We can't wait for Canada to stop tar sands. We can't wait for Australia to stop this stupid coal fetish. We can't wait for America to get rid of Donald Trump. We have to forge our own path and build alliances with new partners like China, like Indonesia, like Korea and other players that recognise that there's a global problem that needs a global response. And how are they adapting to the problems that are there already and who's, who's paying for that? One of the big challenges is the, the cost of the transition. This is why our, our mining industry is fighting so hard, because they're going to be left with stranded assets. They've put hundreds of millions of dollars into infrastructure to support things like coal mining and gas exploration and so on. And someone has to pay the cost of the transition towards renewables. And this is a problem not just in a rich country like Australia, but on a global scale. And one central pillar of the global climate talks has always been what's called climate finance, that OECD countries, and now since Paris Agreement, all developing countries can contribute funding to least developed countries, to small island developing states, to the poorest countries in the world to help them with the transition. Obviously, to help rebuild the disaster of Cyclone Irma, that's just Hurricane Irma, that's just wiped out, literally wiped out many Caribbean states like Puerto Rico and and Barbuda, Antigua and so on, Um, but also the slow onset effects that are coming down the track. And so we saw at this meeting Tuvalu at the uh, Pacific Islands Forum this year proposing a climate insurance facility. Mainstream insurance companies won't insure public buildings because they know they're going to get hammered by cyclones. So they're looking for funding for this sort of activity. Countries are looking for access to what's called the Green Climate Fund, which is a global mechanism, developing a pool of funds um, that can then be allocated to projects in developing countries. And where's that pool of funds coming from? From the OECD countries, the rich capitalist developed countries. Except, of course, some countries have threatened not to give that. We had that. Tony Abbott, um, when he was elected in 2013, announced that Australia would not contribute to the Green Climate Fund. It's bizarre because we were co-chair of the fund at the time. It wasn't as, as if Australia didn't have an influence over the fund's mandate, its operations. Indeed, the Director-General of the Secretariat in Korea is an Australian official. We've had an enormous influence on creating this new Green Climate Fund and we've been co-chair for most of the time. But Tony Abbott threatened not to give them a penny. 
The Obama administration, before the Paris Agreement, pledged $3 billion US dollars for the Green Climate Fund, alongside Germany with a billion dollars, France with a billion euros. A number of major countries have pledged a lot of money. The Americans under Obama put in about a billion dollars into the fund. Donald Trump is still sitting on the remaining money and has said that he's not going to give another penny to the United Nations. This is a, a real problem, that our Pacific neighbours who need the funding to deal with both mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but more particularly adaptation, adapting to the effects of climate change, see rich countries like Australia, like America, refusing to contribute. And all of Australia's climate finance, pledged by both the Rudd, Gillard and Turnbull governments, forget the Abbott government because they didn't want to give any, has all come out of our aid budget. Uh, It's not new and additional money. It's all come out of money that should be spent on health and education and welfare, violence against women, community development, agriculture. It's been about the same amount since 2010. About $200 million a year we give in climate finance from public funds. $200 million a year. It hasn't changed since the days of the Gillard-Rudd government. And yet our fair share of public funds should be about eight times that amount. And people in the Pacific know that, they know. And yet our aid budget is at the lowest level ever. This year in the budget, Scott Morrison cut another $300 million out of the aid budget over forward projections over the next four years. I mean, Australia is at the lowest level of aid as a proportion of national income since 1974. What's been the impact of that decrease in Australian aid to the Pacific? I know a lot of it's boomerang aid, but are there specific instances where the people are suffering because that aid has been Absolutely. denied? I mean, a high proportion of Australian aid goes to the private sector now. You know, under Julie Bishop, there's been a focus on promoting private sector activities. But the private sector isn't going to in- invest in community adaptation at grassroots level. And I'll give you one example. A really good project was started five years ago or so called Yumi Stand Up Yet on Climate Change in Vanuatu, one of our closest neighbours. It was a consortium run by both international and local NGOs, the Red Cross, Save the Children Fund, Oxfam, the Vanuatu Women's Association, Vanuatu Association of NGOs, all pulled together to do disaster preparedness training. They collaborated with the government, with the National Disaster Management Office, had a couple of NGO people working in this government disaster office so there could be good collaboration between the community and government to prepare for cyclones. Nine projects across four provinces, working at community level. And I went to the island of Futuna in 2014, a tiny island in the southeast of uh, Vanuatu. One airstrip, no roads, no paths. We walked around the volcano and visited six villages that are dotted around the base of the island. Very poor communications, people still growing their own food, living off uh, the ocean. And they were doing really amazing community preparedness using the funding from this Australian-funded project, preparing for uh, cyclone foods, you know, saving foods that could be used after cyclone blew down your gardens until they could be regrown, setting up village community disaster preparedness committees involving the chiefs, the women, the young people, uh, simple things like notice boards, uh, what's called vulnerability mapping, so looking at where might flood if the village, if the river rises, where might get hit by a landslide if there's a problem. So trying to work out and prepare for the sort of problems. It was really creative, grassroots work. This project funded by $2 million, working right across the country. Tony Abbott comes in, sorry, we're not going to fund phase two. So the cuts to the Australian aid budget that came under our Conservative government meant that 
the three-year project, started in 2012, had to wrap up. All the locally hired staff that were doing all this great community outreach were all sacked because they didn't have the wages to keep paying them. The project wrapped up in February 2014, and then the next, next month, Cyclone Pam hits whack. Vanuatu gets hit by a disaster. And the same NGOs that have been doing this work are called on now to leap in and help. We want the Red Cross to give you money, you know. It's just short-sightedness. And people in the Pacific know this. And one of the failures of the Australian media is that people in Australia don't know this. They don't know that our aid budget is at the lowest level since 1974 when records were kept about the proportion of national income. They don't know that Australia has been blocking initiatives like this. You know, the anger that you feel when you go to a meeting like the Pacific Islands Forum is not replicated in Australia. I mean, I got off the plane and got in a taxi, and on the radio was the Nationals had their, you know, um, annual meeting. The National Party and Barnaby Joyce were saying that they're going to cut funding to renewables. And it was like schizophrenia being in a, in, a, in a country where there was serious discussion about how do we do this. It's quite complex to make the transition to a climate carbon neutral future. But we come back and there's people in the National Party saying, build coal plants. It's just madness. And people in the Pacific know it's madness, and they're striking out in new directions. They're building new alliances with countries in Asia like India and China and Korea and so on, and saying, Australia, get out of the way. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McLean, recently back from the Pacific Islands Forum in Samoa. What about the other areas of the Pacific where Australian aid has been cut? How has that impacted on the people? When Turnbull was there, one of the big focuses he pushed was about labour mobility. You know, Australia has been promoting trade, private sector growth as the solution to uh, Pacific poverty. There's a new agreement called PESA Plus, which was signed in June this year by 10 countries. And indeed at the forum, Vanuatu, one of the holdouts signed uh, on the margins of the forum leaders meeting. But the two largest economies in the Pacific, in the islands, uh, Fiji and Papua New Guinea, have both refused to sign PESA Plus because they think it's a bad deal. They think it's a deal that opens the way for Australian interests to move into their service sector, into their investment areas, um, and doesn't provide the same sort of market access that is required. So there's real issues about this. Australia, you know, generously and I think positively opened up uh, for more Pacific workers from Kiribati, Tuvalu, Nauru to come and work in Australia, a new scheme uh, to allow for uh, people from these small countries with limited employment opportunities to come and work. But then there's real questions about labour rights and how do we protect the rights of people coming as seasonal workers, coming to work in uh, Australia as temporary migrants. And in many instances they aren't protected. And this is a battleground uh, that we see not just with Pacific workers but with overseas students, for example, working in 7-Eleven stores. We see with backpackers, people who come on the working holidaymaker scheme and have been exploited with sexual harassment, with uh, poor pay, with cash in hand and so on. One of the creative things that's been happening is that some Australian unions have been building links with their Pacific counterparts to talk about labour rights, to protect the rights of seasonal workers, of temporary workers, when they come to Australia. The NUW, for example, signed an agreement in 2015 with the Vanuatu National Workers Union, and so that workers coming from Vanuatu to Australia are now increasingly unionised. Do you have any idea of how many Pacific Islander workers are in Australia? Oh, several thousand at the moment through the Seasonal Workers Scheme, uh, and it's a scheme that's growing, the, the numbers have been uncapped, but it's a, it's a small proportion 
of the number of people who are in Australia as temporary migrants. Um, we've got skilled schemes like 457. Hundreds of thousands of people come through working holidaymaker schemes as international students who can work 20 hours a week and unlimited in the summertime and so on. Um, many people working in breach of their conditions. So there's over a million people in Australia working as temporary um, migrants, over 1.8 million if you count New Zealanders who have work rights in many cases to be here. And that's a huge structural part of the Australian economy now. It's not just a matter of uh, permanent migration. You know, Australia, you know, opening its doors in spite of Peter Dutton to many people from overseas. You know, half the population have a parent born overseas. 25% of the country were born overseas, as you can tell from our parliament. New Zealander Barnaby Joyce, Italian Matt Canavan, a Brit uh, Malcolm Roberts, bless his soul. Has he got one? <laughs> it appears not. Australia is, is a diverse country, and our Pacific neighbours you know, who face enormous problems, want to come and work where there's, where there's jobs. There was a surge of people from Vanuatu after Cyclone Pam looking for opportunities to work overseas in Australia and New Zealand to earn money to go home and rebuild their house that had been destroyed by the cyclone. The same with Cyclone Winston. People in Fiji looking for opportunities, ordinary working people looking for the opportunity to earn enough to rebuild their lives after the devastation of the cyclone. So it's a bizarre situation where people are looking to Australia to provide opportunities for labour market access at a time that Australia's coal policies are generating part of the problem. And so we've got this enormous challenge. You've heard me on this program before about Australia's engagement with the region is such a vital part of what the left, what the labour movement, what progressive people in Australia should be engaged in. These are our neighbours. And the cyclones that hit Queensland hit our neighbours at the same time. But we're a rich country. We can respond. So when the 2009 floods devastated Queensland, they devastated five countries in our neighbourhood. And this is why Tuvalu is promoting things like a climate insurance facility to help with insurance for post-disaster recovery. And it's bizarre that our Prime Minister will go to the Pacific Islands Forum and oppose this sort of initiative. Just as an aside, Nick, have people in the Pacific still got memories of the, the blackbirding? Absolutely, particularly from Vanuatu. Not all countries were blackbirded. It was very widespread, um, particularly from Solomon Islands, from Vanuatu, uh, Fiji, New Caledonia to Australia. There was other blackbirding. People from Kiribati were taken to Peru to work in the guano mines in Peru. So Perhaps we should explain a little what blackbirding meant. Yeah, blackbirding was a, a process of the labour trade during the colonial era, but unlike you know, the opportunity for seasonal workers to come and get a decent job, these were people who were indeed often kidnapped or brought on indentured labour contracts to Australia in colonial times in the 1850s, 1860s, particularly starting to develop the cotton industry as the American Civil War raged between 1860-1865. There was uh, an attempt to set up a cotton industry in northern New South Wales and Queensland, and Melanesian labour was brought in from Solomon's, from what was then the New Hebrides, to work there. As Queensland expanded its sugar industry, uh, men like Robert Towns, founder of Townsville, were involved in this labour trade, and people were literally kidnapped off the beaches. Um, others were offered indentured contracts, um, but with very poor conditions. And when they got here, they found that they weren't. Today, the descendants of those uh, Kanakas, as they were known, are the Australian South Sea Islanders. They're a distinct community, although there's been a lot of intermarriage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. These are non-Indigenous 
people, but live similar to the Indigenous community in uh, Queensland, northern New South Wales particularly, and who've been campaigning for recognition as South Sea Islanders, for recognition of their rights. And in countries like Vanuatu, the memory of blackbirding is really deep. And so there's a lot of debate about whether the new seasonal mobility schemes are another version of blackbirding or whether it can be done with dignity and with proper working conditions. And that's a real challenge for the Australian labour movement. Are we going to let temporary migrants come and work in this country without helping them protect their rights? Workers want to organise. Are our trade unions, are our progressive organisations, are our left-wing parties working with overseas migrants? Or are they saying, fuck off, we don't want you in the country? I think there's a real challenge for the left to be internationalists, to work alongside. These are workers like us. They face the same battles over wages, conditions, occupational health and safety, sexual harassment in the workplace. But as non-citizens, they don't have the same rights as Australian workers and they don't have the knowledge of the labour law, of superannuation, of the right to join a union. So it's really important for domestic workers to work alongside temporary workers and protect their rights, even though we obviously have to prioritise providing jobs for young Australians, providing jobs for Aboriginal Australians, which have got a very poor rate of employment. At the same time, overseas workers are just workers and need to be worked alongside uh, in solidarity. Talk a little bit about Malcolm's visit there. He's only there for one day. Out of how many days? Well, the forum goes on over five, six days. Um, there's a series of meetings leading up to the forum. There's a caucus of what's called the Smaller Island States, which are eight uh, of the forum members that are tiny countries, less than 100,000 people. There's a meeting of the uh, African-Caribbean Pacific grouping. These are the former colonies of the Europeans uh, involved in trade negotiations with the EU. Um, there's a plenary and opening session meetings, uh, what's called a post-forum dialogue with uh, other countries. Our Minister for International Development, Conchetta Feriavanti-Wells, was there. Turnbull literally jetted in and jetted out, and that's a reflection of, I think, a busy schedule here. You know, he's got Tony Abbott trying to stab him in the back every day. He's uh, created a total shambles over the same-sex marriage plebiscite while he was out of the country. As every bloody New Zealand journalist reminded me, Australia was ruled by a New Zealand politician, Barnaby Joyce, as acting Prime Minister, and that's Scott Ludlam the New Zealand Greens politician, put out a, a, a tweet saying, Kia ora, bro, apart from the fact that the Wallabies got smashed by the All Blacks in the Bledisloe Cup, there's a certain trans-Tasman rivalry. People in Australia don't realise how on the nose Australia's climate policy has made our leaders. You know, that, that there is a real anger that Australians are seriously talking about new coal plants and new coal mines. At the same time, that these intense cyclones are destroying the Caribbean, flooding Houston, flooding Tampa. It's bizarre. It's a bubble. And the fact that climate deniers, like Mr Roberts, has now been found to be a fraud, is neither here nor there. I'm less worried about the people like Malcolm Roberts in the Senate. I'm worried about the mainstream political parties that continue to pretend that this is not a climate emergency and that the agreements made under the Paris Agreement... Fiji, they're back? Not quite. Fiji has been represented at the meetings uh, held by the forum this year, the forum foreign ministers and the forum leaders meeting by its defence minister. But um, Varengi Bainimarama, the prime minister, has refused to come to forum meetings ever since 2009 when Fiji was suspended from both the forum and the Commonwealth. Since the uh, 2014 elections, which saw the 
uh, Fiji First government uh, come to power in national elections. Bainimarama's continued his boycott of the forum. He's unlikely to go uh, to forum leaders' meetings for a while. Has that impacted on Fiji negatively? Yes and no. I mean, at one level, um, you know, it's still uh, Fiji's a fairly major player in the region. It's a hub for activities. University of South Pacific is there. Nandi International Airport is a major transport hub throughout the region. It's the second largest economy in the islands after Papua New Guinea. Indeed, the Forum Secretariat, the headquarters of the Pacific Islands Forum, is in Fiji, which causes some diplomatic problems uh, between the Prime Minister and uh, uh, the Forum Secretary-General. But Fiji, for example, was on the, held a major meeting on the margins of this year's Forum Leaders Meeting to talk about COP23, 23rd Conference of the Parties for the UN Climate Talks. Um, as I said, in November this year in Bonn, Germany, Fiji will co-host the, the next round of global climate negotiations, the first time a Pacific country has ever done that. And Fiji's um, representatives, uh, Amini Yavoli and others, were there uh, at the forum on the sidelines um, rallying Pacific support to prepare. It's a unique opportunity for the Pacific and indeed other small island states in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean and so on, to highlight their particular concerns around the Paris Agreement. You know, the Paris Agreement still sets us on a pathway at the lowest estimate to 2.7 degrees of warming. Some estimates say as high as 3.4%. The voluntary pledges made under Paris are nowhere near enough to address the dangers that we face from climate change. And that's why people are so angry about Australia's uh, pledge of 26 to 28% reductions by 2030. That's nowhere near enough to address the challenges that we face. And so the Pacific sees this November's meeting as an opportunity to highlight issues around implementation of Paris, not just signing Paris, but actually implementing it, around issues like loss and damage and adaptation funding, around uh, facilitating dialogue between the major developed countries, large developing countries like China, India, Brazil, and the smaller island states, least developed countries, who bear the cost of the policies of major industrialised nations. Uh, This is a real opportunity, and Fiji and indeed most foreign island countries are seizing it with, with both hands. West Papua? Always an issue in recent years. Indonesia Um, there? Indonesia had a very large delegation, about 17 people in the Indonesian delegation. Uh, Okto Mote, the Secretary General of the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, was lobbying in the corridors. Indeed, there was a small demonstration out the front. Samoan trade unionists, church leaders, community groups rallied outside the conference venue, waving Morning Star flags, uh, pledging their solidarity with West Papua. Symbolically, uh, the Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame Meg Taylor, who's from Papua New Guinea originally, shrugged off her minders and walked across the road to uh, greet the demonstrators. She was invited to say a few words. She declined diplomatically, but I think it was a very strong gesture from the Secretary-General. This is an issue that's not going away. We understand that citizens are raising this as an issue around the Pacific. It's an issue of human rights, but it's an issue of self-determination. We've seen leaders uh, go to the... UN General Assembly just uh, last week, Tuvalu, Solomon Islands and other leaders raised the issue of West Papua, pledging solidarity, Vanuatu and more, pledging solidarity with uh, the West Papua nationalist cause and their right to self-determination. The forum communique was very weak, however. It's sort of on the agenda, but it's hanging on the agenda because Australia, Fiji, Papua New Guinea have all uh, aligned themselves with Indonesian policy, recognising Indonesian sovereignty over what they call the provinces of Papua and West Papua. So there's a bit of a division 
Um, that's not moving. The real question is whether the uh, larger countries can get it off the agenda. At the moment it's not, and that's largely because of citizen pressure. And the, the small but vocal rally outside the, the venue in Samoa, a country uh, you know, not, not central to the Melanesian debates that we've seen in Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu over many years, uh, was uh, well appreciated by the West Papuans. The chant that they, they said was really striking. Samoa was independent in 1962. If we had gold, they'd kill us too. That was the, the rhyming chant that was there, and it's true. In 1961, December 1961, for the first time, West Papua nationalists raised the Morning Star flag, sang the national anthem, and yet uh, under the New York Agreement in 1962, West Papua was set on the path, Dutch New Guinea, as it was then, was set on the path towards Indonesian occupation that came finally with the Act of Free Choice in 1969. But this was the time that the UN put forward its famous resolutions, 1514 and 1541, on decolonisation. It was the time... In 1960, 17 African countries gained their political independence. Dutch New Guinea, as it was then, a Dutch colony, was moving towards independence, and Samoa was the first country. So symbolically, in 1962, Samoa, the first country that gained its political independence in the Pacific, to hear Samoan activists talk about that, that they could have been together if things had been different, if the, uh, the West Papua nationalists hadn't been betrayed by many countries, including Australia at the time, there would have been a very different history. The first foreign investment agreement signed by the Saharto regime that came to power in 1965 with a massacre of between half a million and a million people. Once again, we often forget this, that the, the New Order regime under General Saharto came with the death of many communists, but people alleged to be communists right across the country, massive slaughter more than half a million people some estimates have double that and the first foreign investment agreement signed in 1967 was with Freeport McMoran the major gold miner from the United States and they set up a mine in West Papua the Grasberg Mines uh, and the, the Freeport Mine in, in the Grasberg Mountains of West Papua was the first foreign investment agreement by the regime now, this was 1967, two years before the Act of Free Choice. The Indonesians were already handing over the resources to foreign investors. And that pattern's continued, indeed, just while we were in up here. Papuan workers at the Freeport Mine fighting for better conditions. Just uh, two days ago, there were shots fired uh, on the road leading up to the Grasberg Mountains. It's an area of uh, enormous tension to this day. These questions of resource exploitation, of labour mobility of violence and conflict span across the Pacific and that's why the symbolism of Samoan trade unionists standing alongside West Papuan trade unionists and calling for a free West Papua is such a striking resonance. Uh, once again in Australia we often don't know this history. The Samoan trade unionists do know it. While you were away, well I'm pretty sure it was while you were away, we had the IPAN conference and a big part of that conference was what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. Well, this was the backdrop to the Pacific Island Forum as well. Every day the headlines were of Kim Jong-un threatening, uh, you know, to rain uh, fire and brimstone across the Pacific, um, threatening to fire missiles towards Guam. Donald Trump threatening fire and fury on the people of Korea. Everyone talks about regime change, but this is going to kill millions of people in the Korean Peninsula if war breaks out, and indeed across the region. And the Pacific, as we've talked about many times in this program, has, has borne the, the brunt of 
Pacific nuclear testing. They know what this is all about. Um, there was a Tomorrow activist from Guam who was there as one of the NGOs lobbying at the forum. I interviewed her and she spoke with great moving emotion about the threat to her homeland from people threatening to fire missiles at Guam. Um, and that's because a third of the island is taken up with U.S. military bases. APRA Harbor um, is a major U.S. naval base in the Western Pacific. Anderson Air Force Base, a major runway right in the middle of the Western Pacific. And B-52 bombers, B-1 bombers have flown across Asia. The sorties that they, they fly to the borders to threaten North Korea often fly out of Guam. So Pacific Islands are at the centre of this. And the latest uh, reckless and foolish threat from the North Korean regime to fire a missile with a hydrogen bomb and explode it over the Pacific Ocean, well, that resonates in the hearts of Pacific Islanders because that's already happened. 1962, in July 1962, the United States fired a missile from Johnston Atoll, Kalama, as it's known to the Hawaiian people. It's an uninhabited island uh, in the central Pacific near Hawaii. The U.S. set up a missile testing base on Johnston Atoll in the early 1960s in the lead-up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they fired five rockets from Kalama with hydrogen bombs attached. And in July 1962, Starfish Prime test exploded. A 1.4 megaton bomb exploded. That's 100 times greater than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. exploded in the atmosphere. It put out the lights in Honolulu from the electromagnetic pulse. It lit up the sky from Australia to Hawaii, right across the Pacific. And five of those rocket tests were taken. Three of the others failed. And in fact, the rockets either were exploded at low altitude or one of them blew up on the launch pad, spewing plutonium across the launch pad as this rocket fuel exploded in flames across Johnston Atoll. And Johnston's contaminated to this day. So when Pacific Islanders hear stupid, reckless threats coming out of Pyongyang and the same talk of fire and fury coming out of Washington... It strikes to their heart. I interviewed the Marshall Islands president. The Marshall Islands had 67 atmospheric nuclear tests at Bikini and Inuitok atolls. They're living with the health and environmental consequences. And this is one of the reasons why, once again, Australia has stood aside from its Pacific neighbours. As they went to the United Nations this week, many Pacific countries signed on to the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. All of our neighbours in the immediate area, Indonesia... Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Samoa, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Palau have all signed this treaty that works towards the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Which countries refuse to do so? Australia. We shelter under extended nuclear deterrence under Donald Trump's nuclear umbrella. So once again, when we go to the Pacific Islands Forum, there's no mention of this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons because Australia blocked the regional consensus. Australia wouldn't allow any mention in the Pacific Islands Forum communique about this global initiative. So as we're sitting there in our pier and lunatics in Washington and Pyongyang are threatening to explode nuclear weapons across the Pacific, fire missiles at Guam, Pacific Islanders say enough is enough. They want to strengthen the Rarotonga Treaty, which was weakened by Australia in the interest of the United States back in 1985. They have signed on to the Treaty to Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And once again, the Turnbull government, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, says, oh, this won't advance the cause of disarmament. Well, I'm sorry, we're standing against the tide of history that people are sick of this sort of nonsense, and certainly our Pacific neighbours are calling for 
a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. Just as climate change grew up a generation of uh, activism in the Pacific, uh, so we're seeing the same thing now with nuclear weapons again. A whole new group of students at the University of South Pacific held a meeting on 20th September in solidarity with their leaders going to New York to sign the treaty. So a new generation of political activists are coming to talk about this issue. And once again, Australia's on the wrong side of history. It's certainly great to have Nick McClellan, journalist, researcher, author, on the team here at 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. G'day, this is Jacob Gregg. Starting in October, I'll be hosting a Friday Rave here on 3CR. Each Friday, a different guest and I will be bringing our kitchen table analysis of the political issue of the week into the studio and relentlessly pulling it apart with a slant you won't find anywhere else. So make sure you knock off in time to grab a beer before five from Friday the 6th of October when my first week's guest will be Felicity Ruby here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm sure there are many people who believe that monthly council meetings are pretty dull and predictable affairs, but at least in Moreland and to a lesser extent Yarra and Darabin, it hasn't been the case recently. Today we focus on the city of Moreland and I'm joined once again by Councillor Sue Bolton. Sue, start with the ongoing campaign to stop the development of the former New Farm site in Faulkner before a full audit and community consultation. As briefly as you can, can you give us the history of this site at 102 McBride Street, a site once known as the most toxic in the world? 102 McBride Street is half of an old factory site that used to be owned by New Farm, a company which nowadays operates in Laverton. In the 50s, 60s and 70s, when it had its factory at 100 and 102 McBride Street, Faulkner, it used to produce Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. So it produced the two chemicals that made up Agent Orange 24D and 245T, which create dioxin, which is one of the most dangerous chemicals known to humans, as well as DDT and arsenic and other noxious chemicals. When the factory was operating, residents across the street and nearby areas couldn't grow any plants in their gardens and often resorted to planting plastic flowers to replicate the plants they couldn't grow. The paint was stripped off their fences and houses in very short space of time because of the fumes, but also the stench from the factory was really terrible and was worse at night. So there were a lot of midnight and 2am protests by residents outside the factory gates. The residents had a long fight to close down the factory. They were part of the Faulkner Broadmeadows Progress Association. So they fought to close down the factory. Then they fought another 18 years to get the site cleaned up. Initially, New Farm EPA ignored the pleas of the residents, but eventually they did agree to clean up the site after Greenpeace was formed and did a spectacular action where they got samples of 
dioxin laced wastewater being pumped into the Werribee treatment system. That was the evidence that was sort of needed that put the public pressure on New Farm to clean and EPA to get the site cleaned up. But it was only ever partly cleaned up and then a clay cap put back on top. And at the time, the residents did a door knock and discovered a cancer cluster in the area. There was also a cancer cluster at Lakeside Secondary College amongst the teachers. Now, I gather that was an official study, but because of the time lapse and lack of internet resources at the time, it means we don't really know who carried out that study and we'd really like to get access to that study and we don't know if an official study was ever carried out into the cancer cluster in Faulkner. So that's work for a PhD student or, or someone who's, you know, would be interested in assisting us with research. And so fast forward to today, the original factory site is divided up on two separate titles owned by two separate people and there is a development application on one of the sites and the development application is on 102 McBride Street. Residents are very upset about this because of the history of contamination on the site, the suffering of the Faulkner residents with this site and people are fearful about the clay cap being penetrated to put in foundations to build the warehouses that the developer wants to build on the site. Personally myself as as an activist, a community activist and also nowadays a councillor in Molland Council as well, I totally support the residents in having concerns about this site. What we have discovered through the course of this campaign is that firstly there's no historical memory in the bureaucracy about these contaminated sites and the impacts on the communities. The EPA and the council and the councillors have treated the residents as if they're just hysterical fools. That really is how residents have been treated. It's sort of really quite stunning given that, you know, the various scandals over the years with contaminated sites and other environmental disasters that they would treat residents who, with in a site that's got this history in this belittling kind of manner. If it hadn't been for the formation of a residence campaign, I think this site would have already been, or a permit would have already been granted because it would have just been me up against the other councillors and the council bureaucracy and the EPA. So the fact that there has been a residence campaign that's been formed, which includes both new and old residents, has meant that we've sort of forced the council and the councillors to recognise that there are some serious issues on, on the site. However, we haven't managed to win them enough and it's highly likely that the council will vote to grant a permit to develop on the site Wednesday night, which is sort of really pretty garrulous when you consider Moreland's reputation as a progressive council and the fact that the Greens are doubled in size on council and there's been left Labor councillors, etc. on the council. But I think the way the system is set up is highly problematic and sort of points councillors in that direction 
because there's a lack of independent research and listening to the community amongst councillors across the various political parties. And I'm not in any of those parties. I'm in a different party, a social, socialist alliance, which comes from a different, more grassroots kind of perspective. But what I've learned through this campaign, I've actually learned a lot. I didn't really know, hadn't really had that much to do with the EPA at the beginning of this campaign. But what I've discovered is that this is a privatised system, like the building surveyor system in Victoria, privatised system. So developers, when they go to do a project, they hire environmental consultants to do soil management plans, etc., and then they hire environmental auditor. They have to hire an auditor from a list of accredited auditors, but then they have a choice as to whether to do a statutory audit or a non-statutory audit. This is all in the hands of the developer. Now, statutory audits require auditors to have more obligations and more independence. But for the ordinary person and ordinary community group who are not experts in this area, people wouldn't have a clue that you've got statutory audits, non-statutory audits. They all sound sort of legit. But of course, like with building surveyors, developers can shop around to get a more compliant environmental auditor. And what we've found out from, especially from Harivan most of the Western Region Environment Centre that because the industry, this industry is quite small in Australia, this industry of environmental auditing, it means that in contrast to the US where it's a big industry and there are some environmental auditors that work exclusively with environmental organisations and community organisations, in Australia auditors go wherever the work is and the work is going to be for developers. There are clearly different qualities of environmental auditors. There are clearly some that are more sympathetic to developers. Obviously they've got certain legal obligations to retain their accreditation but there are some that will give a more sympathetic audit to developers than other auditors. But also the developers get to choose the scope of the environmental audit that they pay for. So then when all of that's submitted to council or, you know, development applications, then you can have a situation where councillors, unless they do independent research and unless there's a community campaign that's on the ball that uh, understands what they're looking at, then these audits can look as if they're fine sites that might be quite contaminated, might look fine, and development applications get approved on these sites. I've been really quite amazed by the lack of interrogation of this development of the environmental audits that have been presented by the developer, etc., on this site. And thank goodness we've had access to Harry and Western Region Environment Centre to give us advice based on their experience of fighting toxic dumps, of fighting the EPA. They've had the experience that most of the toxic sites they've fought against have not been listed on the EPA's list of contaminated sites. I mean, Harry pointed out to us that the original audit from 1995 just simply averaged out all of the testing from that period simply averaged out the testing. They did composite testing so that parts of the site which showed very high levels of toxicity were cancelled out by parts of the site where there was very low levels of toxicity 
to come up with the idea that the site was suitable for industrial use, which means workers will be working on that site. There are all sorts of problems in this area and as a result of deregulation and privatisation, really an attitude from the EPA and the council bureaucracy that really their role is to facilitate development as long as it's not too contaminated. That attitude, that mindset, which then transfers to the councillors, then transfers to this idea that as long as it's not too contaminated, really we're there to facilitate development, so therefore we'll pass this application. And the other thing is, in the planning laws, so I tried to put up a motion at the last council meeting because I'm not going to be on council forever. Some of the residents who know the history of the site will die or move away. There's no memory in the bureaucracy about these issues. I tried to move a motion that neither of the two contaminated sites or the surrounding sites, which have never been tested, would have an application voted on before a comprehensive uh, testing and statutory audit with the scope of the testing and the audit being consulted on with the community. So no uh, decision would be made on an application before all of that information was available. I couldn't get a seconder for that motion. I was shocked. There's a council with, you know, out of the 11 councillors, four Greens, one left ALP plus Liberal right-wing ALP and Conservative independents. But I was shocked that I couldn't even get a seconder for a motion like that especially given that there's only a development application on one site. So what about when a development application comes in for the other sites? So instead, what they want to do is grant a permit for a development application with conditions attached for an environmental audit on the site. But I feel that if this is granted, even if there, if there is a condition subject to an audit on the site, as soon as that decision goes through to grant a permit, the residents have lost all rights because what if the audit isn't up to scratch? What rights do residents have then to seek redress? Because I have zero confidence in the EPA and the council with assessing these audits and so forth through this whole process. I don't have any confidence in them whatsoever. I think all of that information needs to be public and able to be peer-reviewed before there's any decision on an audit. I've got no confidence that, you know, there'll be thorough testing because just because you put a probe down in one spot to test doesn't mean there's no contamination near it. So if you only put down five probes on the site it doesn't, and they come up clear, it doesn't prove that there's no contamination on the site. If the scope of the audit is too narrow, then it won't be an audit that residents have confidence in. I'm really quite amazed that the councillors and the council staff have been so naive. Like, haven't they heard of environmental impact assessments done for things like desalination plant, toxic tips, Adani coal mine, which have been highly questionable, which environmentalists have questioned and campaigned against? Haven't they heard of these things? Has that all flown out the window when they're looking at and assessing a development application? I mean, I find this all quite stunning. 
You're talking about a lack of historical memory. There was an attempt to develop part of this site a few years ago with a, a not a very good outcome. Yes, so there have been a few attempts to develop, to develop on the site. There's been illegal development on both of the sites that made up the old factory. The most recent attempt was, you know, I was contacted by a resident, informed the planning staff and they issued a stop work order and the um, developer stopped immediately. But there was no penalty for doing illegal work on the site. This developer wasn't taken to the magistrate's court for any kind of penalty order. It was simply that they stopped work at that time. And certainly when that illegal work was done, nearby residents experienced intense fumes, which were very similar to the old fumes that came out of that factory. So, you know, there's been a history of laxness by the council, the previous Broadmeadows Council as well as the current council, Moreland Council. That also doesn't give me or the residents any comfort. The meeting is tomorrow night, Wednesday night. Do you need more support from people to come along and support the residents? I think it would be great if people come along to support the residents because also I think while this is just one toxic site in one part of Melbourne, I think what happens with each of the toxic sites in Melbourne has an impact on what happens with other toxic sites in Melbourne. And I think, you know, what's happened over the decades and even since we've had environmental legislation, which was fought for by people in the community, what's happened is the same sort of process that's happened with the nuclear industry, where all of this waste, toxic waste, has been produced as a byproduct of industry, just like you have radioactive waste from nuclear power plants and that there's no thought to the future of what's going to happen with this waste. It's just produced and left there for future generations. That's the case on this site, but also many other sites, especially in the western suburbs. And I've got a friend who's a union organiser who's talking to me about Martin Bright Steel the other day, uh, a factory where you know workers used to be strong unionists. Companies closed down now. There's a massive pile of chrome, a massive pool of chrome underneath that factory. So it can't be used for anything that site other than light industrial. Although I query some of these sites being used for light industrial because of workers working on these sites for long hours, I question that as well. How safe is that? Not just residents, but workers' health and safety. So I feel that what happens, the outcome on this site toxic site in McBride Street will have an impact on what happens on other toxic sites throughout Melbourne and I think it would be great if we can use a campaign to stop development on this site and to get proper testing and a proper audit done on this site that the community has confidence in, then I think that can be of assistance to people campaigning against other toxic sites. One problem for communities around this issue is that there aren't many environmental groups that campaign around toxic sites now, probably because there's so many other environmental issues like the whole you know, future of the planet with climate change. Most uh, environmental organisations are focused on climate action, which is totally understandable, 
So a lot of the old campaigning that used to exist around toxic issues of chemicals and toxic poisoning, etc., those campaign groups aren't focused on that issue anymore. And so really it's only Western Region Environment Centre that's focused on this issue because there have been so many you know, issues of toxic waste dumps and toxic tips and so forth in their area that they've had to fight around. I think the absence of campaigns by environmental groups around this issue is probably making it easier for developers and councils and EPAs to ram through development applications, which could be questionable. And I think because we've got this privatised system where developers can shop around for a more friendly environmental auditor and set the parameters of the audits, etc., I fear that there are a lot of development applications occurring throughout Melbourne which are going to be hazardous to future generations of residents. And my fear is also partly because of the example of a housing development in Queensland. Uh, a friend of mine is a scientist who used to work at the Workers' Health Centre in Brisbane at Trades, Hall, Trades and Labor Council up there, and workers started coming in with all sorts of health complaints. Local doctors had been besieged by people with health complaints, but they couldn't work out what the cause was of them. It turned out, and my friend who is a writer for Green Left Weekly as well, Carol Winter, she uncovered that this housing estate had been built on top of a disused coal mine. Only the very oldest people in the area remembered that and knew about that. Possibly there was a campaign at the time against the development, I'm not sure. But a future generation then was suffering the consequences. And because there wasn't much historical memory of you know, the fact that this was built on a disused coal mine, people were getting all sorts of issues as a result of the chemicals used in gold mining leaching to the surface. I think residents are absolutely right to be concerned and I'm shocked that there is such a lack of concern by the authorities and including elected representatives and I'm also shocked that the nature of the system for dealing with toxic sites and planning applications on toxic sites is so rigged in favour of the developers and against communities seeking safety. Where is the meeting and what time? So the meeting will be at 8pm at the Coburg Council Chambers, which is the Coburg Town Hall is based on 90 Bell Street, but you need to enter from the rear entrance in Urquhart Street. And how long is that meeting likely to go for? Are there other issues to be discussed as well? There are other issues, but this will be the first issue on the agenda. I've been promised that because I know that one of the residents will be coming to speak will be is an 85-year-old woman who's lived in Faulkner since 1957, uh, which is the year that the factory started producing chemicals on the site. And that was City of Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton speaking about the property at 102 McBride Street in Faulkner and if you're thinking of going to that meeting tomorrow night it's the Coburg Town Hall it's um, 90 Bell Street and you enter through the back street which is Urquhart Street 
like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. You're invited to the Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering on the 7th and 8th of October at the Victoria Trades Hall in Nam, Melbourne. Speakers from Latin America, so-called Australia, West Papua, Aotearoa and other communities will come together to share their struggles, setbacks and victories. In two days of speakers, workshops, stalls, music, food, discussion, building bridges and more. The 2017 Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering, October 7th and 8th at the Victoria Trades Hall. While colonialism, capitalism and neoliberalism are global, so is the resistance. For more information, including donations and how to volunteer, email lasnet.solidarity at gmail.com or call 0425 Two issues today to discuss with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. And Peter, the first, the people of Timor-Leste are welcoming in the seventh constitutional government after 15 years of independence. What do you believe the people can look forward to with the new government? Expectation should be, or I think it is, for a more careful spending government and a government which will focus more on health and education and employment issues than uh, the previous few governments. But at the same time, it will be a government very careful to talk to all sides of uh, politics in, in the country, try to involve all sides in the work of the government in one way or another. But the hope for continued peace and stability is, is often stated by a range of uh, voices in the country. So what's been going on over the last 15 years that things haven't been going quite as well as many people expected they would. Yes, the expectations are hard to, to measure really in a way uh, what is realistic but since uh, 2002 when the United Nations transferred sovereignty to an elected Timorese government there's been I'd say three phases of, of uh, politics. The first phase up to 2006 was uh, a Fretland government with other people also taking part in the ministry with a very uh, low budget. Their budget was really counted in the hundreds of millions of dollars only and it was based on donations made through the IMF to help rebuild the country after the devastation of 1999. 2006, the first sort of serious petroleum money started to flow from the Bayou Undan gas and oil fields and the uh, budget could increase. But at that time, there was a huge upheaval in the country. A large part of the population was displaced through violence. 
allegedly, you know, Easterners versus Westerners. But uh, I think it was really a, an unfortunate uh, convergence of international forces and, and local forces to get rid of the Fredland government. There was, uh, as I say, a, a terrible uh, loss of life and property again. There was elections then in 2007, and a new party had been formed called CNRT, which was a, a memory or an echo of the CNRT, which uh, led the last phase of resistance to the Indonesian occupation. So CNRT was led by Shanana Gushmao, who's a, a national hero, took over the government from 2007 right through to 2015, that's through two elections. You know, the upheaval from 2006 wasn't over until early 2008 with the death of uh, one military rebel, Major Reynado. So it's, um, it was a really sustained period of trouble. I don't know if people, listeners could recall that it, towards the end of that uh, time in early 2008, the president of the country, Jose Ramosorda, was shot and uh, almost killed in one of these incidents. There was a lot more money spent between that time and, and uh, 2015. But in 2015, uh, Shanana Gushmao announced that he would resign as the Prime Minister. He recommended that the, the post go to somebody from Fretland, a, a doctor called Rui Araujo. And uh, so an, a sort of uh, amalgamated sort of government. That is, it wasn't really a coalition, but it was CNRT plus a few from Fretland governed between early 2015 and this recent election we, we just had, just two years, and there was quite a, a sort of shake-up of the budget and change of priorities starting to, to happen. And now we've got uh, an election which produced a very slim majority, or not a majority, but a plurality for Fretland. So Fretland is now actually forming the government. We're also in a period where... The amount of funds in the petroleum fund, which is the real basis of the budget of the country, is uh, not really going to increase much more because the Bayou Undan field is, is uh, in its last phase of development and will probably be exhausted around 2022. Some people are saying that the country will go bankrupt because there's no new petroleum development going to come on stream in time, but others uh, are saying until very recently, not, not a lot to show for the amount of money being spent, so perhaps the lesser funds available and a better set of priorities may even even so lead to an improvement for people. You know, so it's a um, moment of hope, I, I think, and, and actually people are really happy about the peacefulness of the country, but we're yet to see how the new government, which was only really announced a week ago, will really uh, set the the priorities and how it will manage the relatively fractious politics of the country to, to maintain unity of purpose and uh, careful spending of the resources of the people. And to concentrate more maybe on the, the young people of East Timor, I'd imagine like most developing countries, the age of the population is fairly young. Jobs, education, we've got to have the education first. What's happening in that area? Again, a troubled troubled story but uh, everybody talks about education being a priority and, and anyone who's visited Timor less can see you know, huge numbers of school children moving in and out of the schools in the day and all their parents um, delivering them to the schools and them up. It's really a very high priority but I think the 
schools have not really been adequately funded and the university which is also there in Dili is very important and uh, it's also not adequately funded. Sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a mirage of a university. There's a, there's a classroom but there's, there's hardly any books and things like that. But uh, the students are very keen. Again, anyone visiting Dili will get stopped on the street by university students trying to improve their English and talking about their hope for employment in all sorts of fields. And as well, there's quite, partly because of this problem, there's quite a lot of Timorese students studying in Indonesia, in, in Portugal, a few other countries. So there's a few in Australia, but uh, you know, there's an overseas student base as well. Has the new government proposed a, a priority for agriculture? Yes, it has. Agriculture is, is what uh, employs most people in Timor-Leste. Improving the uh, output and improving the incomes that people get from agriculture is a very important part of the long-term development plan of the country. What about businesses, small businesses? I imagine there wouldn't be too many big businesses. And, and what's been the, de- the focus of, of money gone into, into Dili itself rather than into other areas of East Timor? Um, I wouldn't declare myself an expert on this, but uh, it's really uh, a place where the, the, the street vendors for currency exchange and uh, mobile telephone airtime you know, uh, are very much in your face. And, of course, selling food and uh, small, very small uh, restaurants that's uh, all more prominent. But uh, there's also a lot more vehicles. There's a lot more servicing of uh, equipment, telecommunications and internet and so on going on. Everybody's pretty switched on about uh, communications in, in Timor-Leste, partly because there's a predominantly young population, as you pointed out, and also there's not much money, you know, so people are really smart to get the most out of the few dollars they can actually afford to spend on these things. Has nepotism been a big problem? I would say yes, you know, in one way. Um, but the, the main word people would use is just corruption, cronyism, and so on. And one of, again, one of the unfortunate things I think you see in Dili is, uh, uh, and on the fringes of it, rather palatial mansions, you know, really very expensive houses for a few, a select few uh, elite who've emerged in this last 10 years or so. You know, there's, you know, there's some things which really shock you in a way. And who are living and, in these houses? And, well, these are people who've, who've got their money via government contracts, often government contracts for road construction or other sorts of infrastructure maintenance, which has just been really obviously wasted. The one thing I can say right now is that in this, in this last 18 months or so, the, the road maintenance contracts have gone to Chinese companies, but the work seems to be of a really good standard. So... Uh, I, I was there for the presidential elections in March and uh, wet season was just over, but the roads uh, were intact going out of Dili to the main, uh, like Baokao and other uh, towns. I thought that was a remarkably different situation and, and so there's a bit of you know, confidence that the money isn't being wasted anymore. But previous governments have simply given contracts to people without the technical capacity to do things, seen it as somehow a good stimulus, but it's turned into a sort of worse than a fiasco in the past. Where did that money go? 
Yes, you see some of it around Dili, and there's uh, many reports of Timorese having uh, properties in Bali. So a fair bit of it went back to Indonesia. How much of the other economy of um, East Timor or Timor-Leste is under control by the Chinese, or maybe not under control, but influenced by the Chinese? It's a, it's a long-standing thing in Timorese history, from the well in you know, a couple of hundred years ago in the Portuguese time, because Portugal also had uh, territory in Macau. So there's, there's been a Chinese commercial presence in Timor-Leste for hundreds of years. The Chinese part of the community was pretty well driven out or killed by the Indonesian invasion in 1975-76. But uh, people always had their connections there, and so, again, some thankfully have been able to return. Or, you know, a lot of them are living in Sydney, but are, are finding ways to, to help in, in Timor. So there's that traditional connection. The Chinese government itself has shown a lot of interest in Timor, less, so there's a huge... Chinese embassy compound and there's also very significant buildings that were donated by the Chinese government but uh, again built with Chinese labor that was just shipped in and then when the buildings finished they went back to China you know it's had you know rather ephemeral economic impact but <laughs> very visible sort of psychological impact so like the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs all big buildings constructed by China and how stable is the relationship with Indonesia? It's quite stable. You know, in these last few years, that just seems to have been a, a help to Timor-Leste rather than a problem. It's obvious uh, when you read anything about political discussion in the region that the military in Indonesia still feel a lot of pain for the loss of the territory which they had invaded and occupied. But I think that as, as a political class, the leadership in Indonesia has abandoned the idea that they could ever get that back. So there's, there's no sort of pressure coming like that on, on uh, Timor-Leste uh, in these last few years. That's good, and there's, you know, it's obvious that a lot of trade would happen across the border and by a ship, and also there's quite a lot of trade to, to Singapore as well. Finally, on Timor-Leste, Peter, negotiations regarding the conciliation process on the seaboard border between mm. Australia and Timor-Leste is scheduled to be resolved, I believe, next month. How important is that when you talked a moment ago about the lack of or the, the less importance now of that oil and gas coming from that area? Is that also lessening in that area as well as the former? No, there's two levels to it. You know, there's definitely a, a very widespread sense of national injury in Timor-Leste that this border has not been settled. And uh, the uh, role of the Australian government in you know, frustrating the people, it, you know, it's, it's palpable. So it's, it's important at the level of general relations between the Australian people and the Timorese people that this be settled. And there's a resource aspect to it because of the the uh, gas field called Greater Sunrise, which straddle, you know, it's probably straddled or is close to where the boundary ought to be. So a little bit of it might be in Australian waters, but most of it probably is in Timorese waters, but maybe there's a bit in Indonesian waters too. I think the negotiations over the boundary will just inevitably take place with uh, an eye on the resources as well. And so it's a sort of a, 
pragmatic commercial deal as well as something to do with international law. And it is important, I think, in the long run. There's definitely a very strong opinion in Timor-Leste that says the country's doomed unless greater sunrise is rapidly developed. And, that, and I express the other opinion that, you know, perhaps it doesn't, if it's developed quickly and money comes on stream, maybe the money will be wasted. And as far as we know, greater sunrise is the last major petroleum resource undeveloped that the Timorese would have ownership of. Therefore, you know, what happens to the revenue is very important for the long term. That there needs to be a transformation of the economy in Timor-Leste. It's obviously very difficult to do it, given the experience of the last 15 years, and there's only really one more serious shot at it. And therefore, that resource has to be handled very carefully. You know, there's that voice that says, well, we don't, let's not rush into it. Coming back to Australia, I think... Uh, there's, there's a new element entered into the uh, debate this year because of the heightened tension in the South China Sea and the ruling of the International Court of Justice about the Chinese claims on reefs and islands in the South China Sea. Australia is a bit uh, stuck out there because Australia is not uh, respecting the uh, International Court of Justice jurisdiction in relation to the seabed boundary until very recently. So the United States has started to say more or less in public we really want Australia to settle that issue in conformity with international law. So there's that going on as well as the fact that the Woodside Petroleum is the developer of the Greater Sunrise field perhaps has changed its own planning and, and wants to get on with developing that field and it can't do it until these issues about ownership are resolved. So there's a, there may be a corporate Australian in pressure on the government to resolve it. But there's always a politics itself. So I think um, the Timorese having a very uh, peaceful election cycle this year, hopefully continuing in a, in a united way, the Australian government will realise well, that it's best to settle this now and settle it honourably, not harshly. That would be my hope. That certainly hasn't been much on us so far, has there? That's right, that's right. That's why I think a lot of Australians are quite pleasantly surprised at the rapidity with which things have developed since January this year. So it's only really in January that it became clear that Australia had sort of dropped the hard-line approach. The idea that it could all be fixed by October, you know, has been a bit of a surprise and stunning even. Perhaps it could have been more drawn out and... (laughs) difficult and, and so on as a negotiation might be that involves billions of dollars of resources but uh, uh, it seems no, they promised to, to do this so I'm just a little bit concerned that with this uh, parliamentary election which took place in July there has been difficulty real difficulty in setting up the new government. That difficulty really was driven by Shanana Gushmao's apparent anger and disappointment at just you know, missing out on getting a majority for CNRT in that election or a, a plurality for CNRT. There's really been a, a, a really weird set of dynamics happened since July 22. And say initially, Fredlin was able to say that the new People's Liberation Party and the small youth-oriented party called Kunto would join with it to form a, a coalition government and have a majority in the parliament. And I think uh, after some very deliberate uh, pressure from Shanana, 
after People's Liberation Party pulled out and then right at the 11th hour the Kunto pulled out and uh, so the Democratic Party stepped in uh, and we really got a minority government now not really a majority in the parliament for it but all parties including CNRT have promised to vote for votes of confidence in the budget so it's got some good guarantees I think but but no one expected that to happen you know so there's a certain a certain you know instability in the situation and cynical people in the Australian government will would exploit that and um, I just hope that the people with a longer vision and perhaps a bit of a longer memory of uh, what Australia owes the Timorese people will avoid that temptation. Moving on to the Philippines, Peter, September the 21st, 1972, a dark day for the people of the Philippines, the day that the dictator Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law for the whole of the Philippines. What was Duterte up to with his announcement that he was planning to suspend schools and government work on that day, and did it happen? Yeah, he... uh declared it to be a national day of protest. It was a bit of a sort of a populist uh, off the back of the cuff, you know, thing. So initially people thought he declared a national holiday, but then he said, no, 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 it's, it's not a national holiday, but, you know, if people are upset, you know, they're all welcome to come down here to Manila and have a rally and uh, express their views. What actually happened was that, you know, he organised the pro-Duterte rallies it was a way, I think, that type of announcement was a way for him to legitimise what he was going to do himself that day, last Thursday. And what happened on the day? It's, you know, I've been uh, trawling through the uh, internet to see you know, what the reports are and uh, there was maybe four or five different things happening uh, on September 21 in Manila and I guess you know, in many towns and cities across the country. The biggest protests were organised by the... National Democratic Movement, plus the Catholic Church. There were marches all around the city, ending up in the Luneta, which is a very, very big park uh, near Old Manila, um, on Manila Bay. So the the sense that there was a big uh, outcry against the drug war killings, which have been terrible massacre, really. Declaration of martial law in Mindanao, and also... Now, President Duterte is, they say, cuddling up to the, the Marcos family. Marcos was this dictator who, who put the country through torture. That The protest touched on all those things. But uh, Duterte held his own rally to, to say, go, go on with change, because that was his big promise at the election last year. The, separately, uh, the Liberal Party, which is a traditional elite political party, but it's against Duterte and was against Marcos. They organised some church services which had the, their focus on the, the mass killings and the war on drugs. Then the, the Catholic bishops themselves held another big church service to do the same thing, but they, they didn't do it So it went directly with the liberal politicians. The president of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of the Philippines came out strongly against the government and called on people to stand up, not, no longer be silent about this uh, war on drugs. In different groups uh, with different uh, emphasis, but really it was, a, it was a, a big shock, I think, to Duterte that it happened. And after it happened, he said uh, he would like to have a dialogue with these protest groups. So instead of being truculent and maybe aggressive against them for protesting, he's trying to you know, absorb the impact and uh, somehow manage them. 
but uh, I think given that he had a landslide political victory in uh, May 2016 and now here we are in uh, September 2017, it's a big turnaround and a big setback I think for, for him and his ambitions. Did the hierarchy of the Catholic Church challenge Marcos as well? Yes, they did. If you can recall uh, the name of Cardinal Sin, it's a very colourful name for a <laughs> cardinal, but uh, he he was a very prominent uh, critic and really the Catholic Church in the 1980s especially, I'm not so sure about the 1970s, was uh, outspoken in its criticism of Marcos, especially after the assassination of Benigno Aquino. That was in 1983, I think. So for the last three years of the dictatorship, the church was very active against Marcos. Have these rallies in the past days taken a bit of tension off what's happening in the Mindanao? No, no, they, they, especially the biggest ones, included a strong focus on what's happening in Mindanao. And there was an element of uh, very significant mobilisation of indigenous people coming to Manila for the this, this protest and they, they've got now this national alliance of indigenous peoples which covers the whole country called Sandugo and they were prominent in uh, uh, the voices that were raised on September 21 and their concern is that in Mindanao especially but in, in northern Luzon and other parts as well the military have been using uh, aircraft to bomb their communities it's really continuing a sort of war against them to force them off lands which now, you know, mining companies and logging companies want to seize. No, it's a, I think the focus on Mindanao is very strong. And there is really also a, a genuine fear that Duterte might extend the martial law to the whole country, that is really do a Marcos. That didn't happen, and, and in a way the reaction of Duterte to the protests means maybe that won't be, you know, at the front of his mind for a, for a while now. Yeah, what's going on in Mindanao is, a, is actually a great concern everywhere. The particular situation in Marawi City is also uncertain. It's been a couple of weeks now since Duterte apparently ordered the you know, ending of the uh, fighting in that city by uh, you know, a, a sort of a blanket bombardment of the positions still held by the IS uh, rebels. We, we're not hearing any, any report that that's actually happened even though there are daily bombing raids in, in that area, the resistance hasn't been pushed out. So it's a really long, drawn-out, painful situation for all the people there. And the level of destruction in Marawi City now is such that a large number of the displaced people know that there's nothing for them to return to. There's going to be another type of crisis emerge in that there's going to be a couple of hundred thousand people who will need to go somewhere else. And their livelihood is, you know, it's actually wiped out. So there's a huge anger there, as far as I can hear, and a big humanitarian crisis. An increasing involvement of Australian resources and forces supporting yeah. Duterte? Yes, that's right. I think there's uh, a collapse of uh, international criticism of Duterte because of what's happened in Marawi City. While the national protest against him is escalating now, the international side, which was loud and noisy you know, last year, is, is dropping off because of this use of the uh, terrorism, anti-terrorism paradigm. I think that's incredibly short-sighted by 
you know, the US government, the Australian government in particular. It's sort of a, a distraction, I think, from the, the deep issues that really need addressing in Mindanao and, and in the Philippines as a whole. I think the Australian government is also playing a bit of ducks and drakes here because their rhetoric is strong and they're saying they're committing more resources and military resources and intelligence to the situation there. But in fact, I think that they're, they're just talking about things they've already been doing for a long time. So I think for a long time, the Orion aircraft have been flying over Mindanao and doing uh, surveillance. And uh, for a long time, I think since 2006, we've had SAS in that area. I'm sure they're still there. And uh, doing what the Australian government said they would do now, that is, you know, train Philippine military. We should have always been concerned with the, the way that the Australian government has actually been engaged in Mindanao, and uh, perhaps it's a bit more open now. Maybe we'll have a more of a, a national debate about that, you know, a more informed national debate. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you very much again, Jan. And that was Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist from Sydney. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Come by law coming up in just about one minute, but let's go out with a new program coming up very, very soon. Bye for now.